Well, welcome to Scotland's Choice uh, and a special uh, podcast of these. As listeners will know, International Women's Day is a global day celebrating the social, economic, cultural and political achievements of women. The day also marks a call to action for accelerating gender parity. Now, over the past year, we've discussed gender-based issues with several guests on Scotland's Choice, and we wanted to do a special episode to celebrate the contribution of women to our movement, to our communities, and of course, to our society, but also to keep a shining light on the many biases that women face day in, day out. So let's hear who's joining us on the podcast today. My name is Charlotte Armitage. I'm a 23-year-old young woman. I currently work for Paul McClellan, MSP, and I've been an independent supporter since I was 16. My name is Sally Donald. I'm 27 years old. I work in politics and I am a violence against women and girls activist. My name is Sue Lyons. I'm 58. I've been a member of Women for Independence since 2012 and sat on their National Executive Committee uh, until last year. I'm an anti-poverty activist and a charity manager here in Inverness. Well, Charlotte, Sue and Sally, thank you for joining me in this International Women's Day special of Scotland's Choice. I want to start um, by asking you this. When, when planning this episode, we were conscious that part of the bias issue can be that women are given a platform to speak only about women's issues, like this special episode, for instance. And the irony of the question, of course, isn't lost on us. That's why I'm starting with this. But let's tackle that uh, head on. Uh, as three women who are involved in politics, it, is that your experience? Um, for me, I would say that based on the work I do, it's quite natural for me to be asked about women's issues because I'm so vocal about violence against women. So for me, I'm quite happy to be the spokesperson for that. Um, but on a broader sense, I would say I have contributions to make that go far beyond the issues of women that I'm not asked on. Um, so I would certainly say, yeah, that what you say there rings true for me. Yeah, I, was, I would echo what Sally said there. I think it's really easy when you um, align yourself as an activist or an activist in any sense for any cause, but particularly when you're an activist for gender-based violence or gender inequality, you kind of become the person that people come to speak to about that. But um, as a young woman, there's so much more to my identity than just being a young woman. You know, I am working class. I support the SNP. I have loads of different hobbies that could potentially be relevant to politics. So um, I think in any sense, just being a woman isn't the single thing that defines us. We are individual people with very multifaceted identities that can feed into politics in a multitude of ways. And Sue? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that this certainly was the case when I first started um, campaigning back in 2012. Um, I, I think in local um, activism, it is less so now than it was then. Um, but the, the what we've just heard is absolutely right, that when you speak up for issues that affect women, people come to you for answers about those issues. And, and it's, you know, we have so many women who can speak on so many different things now um, that uh, it's really important that we see that in the round, I think. Well, for our listeners who may not be aware, there's, there's actually a theme uh, for this year's International Women's Day. And that theme is Break the Bias. And I know that they'll be um, keen to hear uh, from you all about what International Women's Day uh, means to you personally and why the theme is important. So, so as today is about celebrating women, let's take a moment to celebrate 
you. I mean, not only are you a great all-round <laughs> human being, but you've dedicated your life to promoting independence to women and women's rights. You're a loving mother of five. You have a successful career and and you've just graduated from university with a distinction. So congratulations. Um, one of the things that uh, the women in my life tell me is that they find it harder than their male counterparts for their successes to be recognised. Is that something that you can relate to, Sue? Um, yes, I think so. Um, I think that um, I think it's hard to recognise our own successes. Um, and certainly as an older woman, um, I think that when I started campaigning with Women for Independence, I was a stay-at-home mum. And people would ask me, who are you? And I would say, I'm nobody really. And they would say, what do you do? And I would say, well, I, I don't do anything. Other women taught me that that was not the case and helped me to recognise my own successes. So I think it is harder for women to have their successes recognised, but I think it's sometimes hard for us to recognise our own success too. Um, I don't think men have that same issue. It, Sally and Charlotte, I know both of you work entirely to support women in our communities, and you've spoken about how personal uh, experiences have shaped your campaigning uh, for gender-based issues. And only last week, um, you worked with uh, Strut Safe uh, to put on an event that, um, that, that, that recognised a year has passed since the murder of uh, Sarah Everett. And um, I often hear the term that it's exhausting being a woman. Is that something that you can both relate to? Definitely. I mean, I spoke alongside Sally at the event and I think both of us resonated something very similar to those exact words. It is extremely exhausting to be a woman. Um, but not only that, it's about recognising our privilege as well. So I'm a, a white woman, I'm a, what would have pretty privilege as well. So it's exhausting for me being just a woman, but can you imagine how exhausting it is for minority women, for women of colour, for trans women, all these experiences that I myself as a white woman in a privileged position experience, then also experiencing and compounded by the experiences that they go through as minorities in this country. So I think there's a lot happening a lot of time for women we are coming up against like generational misogyny and unpicking generational gender gender inequality all the time and that's placed on us women and seen as something that us women have to solely deal with I think the conversations are starting to change and that's great there seems to be a lot more men at the table but until the the shift is it's not a woman's problem to deal with gender inequality and to deal with misogyny and sexism then it will continue to be exhausting to be a woman yeah, absolutely. I would agree with Charlotte there. Um, and just in terms of men's contribution to it, I think men can quite often turn up to the conversation, sort of say their bit, and then they can step away with it from the like experiences. But women don't have that luxury. We have to like we're aware of it regardless. It's you're so hyper aware of it, especially within politics, because um you're one of so few women around, even in within my branch. I'm one of definitely a minority. I think I'm definitely the only under 30 year old, um, one of maybe a handful under 40. So even that, it just shows that young women in politics, it's not really a space for us. Um, but yeah, I guess the break the bias theme sort of ties into that and in trying to break that bias that women do belong in politics. The, the pandemic has shaped all aspects of life over the past few years, with the workplace having to go through radical overhauls. But it's also 
in, in doing that shone a light on the demands of women who are more likely to have to be balancing primary carer roles with their work than uh, men. Uh, but while the light may have shown, shone on the biases they face day in and day out, it hasn't necessarily meant uh, progress. According to the latest Women in the Workplace report, women are now significantly more burned out and increasingly more so than men. Sue, so, so why do you think this is? I think there's a lot of reasons. I think that in the workplace, it takes women longer to get established um, in their careers, um, to get promoted as well. It, women take longer to get promoted. And it's harder sometimes, I think, to see ourselves reflected in the leadership roles. There's still this imbalance um, within the workplace. And in addition to that, women carry the bulk of, of domestic chores in many households. Um, the last year, COVID uh, exacerbated that, juggling homeschooling and studying and working and everything else had me on my knees last year. And, and I'm, I don't think I'm alone in that. Charlotte, the, the same report states that almost 50% of women are in entry-level jobs, but that reduces to 22% as they go up the ladder. The other side of that is that nearly 80% of senior roles are filled by men. These are quite staggering figures. What, why do you think this is still happening? I think that, again, very much relates to the points that Sue just made. There is very clear structural gen gender inequality that exists in society that prevents women from climbing up that ladder. You know, We often use that expression of breaking through the glass ceiling. I, I really see that myself as a young woman trying to make it up my own career ladder. There's a lot of different barriers that women come up against that men just don't have to experience. And I also think, going back to the point that Sue made about recognising successes, um, we are bad for recognising our own successes, but also we are judged differently, I think, in workplaces in terms of the, the level of expectation that's placed on men is, in my opinion, different to the level of the expectation that is placed on women. So it's harder for us to demonstrate that we have the skills and the capability to take on a role that a man would naturally fall into and in, say a, a large organisation. It's, it's more likely for a man to take the promotion than it would be a woman if it was a single contest. So I think a lot of that comes back to, again, structural gender inequality, structural and um, perhaps unintentional bias. This is what the whole theme is all about, right? Sometimes we have our own unconscious biases and we don't recognise that they exist. And that's a real issue for women in workplaces because it hinders our ability to, to achieve and to climb up the ladder as such. So very much agree with what Sue was saying. And I think these are all very related in the report. Sally, you were uh, talking earlier about the, you know, being a younger woman. As a, as a young woman, do you see the barriers in the workplace? And uh, what do you think needs to, to change? Yeah, I think um, young women are often taught to be sort of happy with what you're given and be grateful with your situation. And if you like strive for more and you think you deserve to earn more money and you question that or you express an interest in getting yourself to the top of the career of the career ladder is seen in such a different way to men. Men, it's seen as like um, ambitious and like goal-driven, but women, it's almost like um, big-headed and like, oh, she's a bit confident. She loves herself, doesn't she? We don't, um, we don't celebrate women being ambitious in the same way we see it in men. So, yeah. At this point, I want to bring in some pretty staggering uh, figures from the recent 
World Economic Forum gender gap report, which back up what you're saying, it, it reports that on current trajectory, it might take a staggering 135.6 years to close the gender gap uh, worldwide. That's really depressing reading. Uh, Sue, uh, how do you think shaping policy can or is having an impact on gender parity in society in Scotland? Um, I think there's the potential to, to make a real difference. Um, I think things like, uh, right across different policy areas, things like the Scottish child payment can help to tackle poverty, which affects women more than men, we know that. Um, free childcare, for me, is, is massive, you know. Um, access to quality affordable childcare was something I never had. Living in a remote rural community, I was living up in Caithness um, with a, a, a seven-year-old, an eight-year-old and a two-year-old as a single parent. Um, it just was a continual source of stress mm. and pressure and affected my mental well-being massively. So for me, those sorts of things are really important, I think, and can make a real practical difference to the day-to-day -day lives of women. And Sally, the, the same report estimates that it'll take 145.5 years to attain gender parity in politics. And women currently represent only about 26% of some 35,500 overall parliamentary uh, seats worldwide. Did these figures surprise you? No, in no way is that surprising. I just think politics is um, not a friendly space for women to be in. I actually held a discussion with my branch last week on the um, abuse that women in politics face um, to a largely male audience who, um, for the most part, were completely unaware. And I think that's part of the issue. Men aren't aware of the struggles that we go through as women in this area. Um, so I guess greater awareness there and also better systems in place. Um, I know the women's convener is... Um, in the process of setting up a mentorship program. And I think that will just be transformational for young women. Um, I mean, women of any age to have somebody who's where they want to be, showing them how it's done, supporting them um, when they have questions or when they inevitably face misogyny. Mm -hmm. And Charlotte, here in Scotland, we have a female first minister and finance cabinet secretary and a gender balanced cabinet. But across the board, the gender cap in politics remains. Why do you think that is? I do think the, the largest element of that is to do with the abuse that women in politics experience and the very public abuse that women experience. It only has to take a quick scroll on social media to see the very targeted, personalised abuse that some of our female MPs experience. I know that female MPs in general experience the most abuse in Parliament just now, so I could probably name a couple of them that I think off the top of my head would be the exact people for that. But also, it goes back to what I was saying about in the workplace, the different standard that women get held to is very evidenceable in politics. We only need to look at the way that our first minister has been compared to Boris Johnson over the like entirety of this pandemic, the, the standard that she has been held up against. For example, being pictured taking her mask off at a funeral and then yeah. all of the, the stuff that's come afterwards, the parties in Westminster, completely different dynamic in the way that mm -hmm. they've been held accountable so I think that is a huge um, barrier for women because women don't want to put themselves through that to be blunt and I think 
also because there is a gap then we don't see ourselves in this, those positions if we can't see ourselves in those positions and so many women are actually coming back I've seen quite a lot of women stand down you know we only saw mm. in the in the recent election loads of women standing down partly because of childcare, partly because of the inaccessibility of parliament for women and and you see it in the council election a lot of young women have stand down again because of inaccessibility and lack of support as women so there's a lot of changes I think that need to happen across the board in politics to provide women the space and the safe space importantly to be able to engage in political activity. And Sue you've got some thoughts on that yeah. Yeah, I think it's, you know, just to, to reiterate what, what was already said, but I think it's we have to make sure that, that women can continue in politics through every stage of their lives and careers. And I don't mm. think we do that mm. um, when they have children, when they are older. We need to make sure that we can do that. And the other thing that was really interesting, what Sally said about men being unaware of, of the level of misogyny that women face, um, I think that... Part of the key to that is robust and responsive, responsive processes to address that. Mm -hmm. So that when things go wrong and when we face discrimination or abuse um, or harassment, the, the processes that are in place tackle that. Because if people get away with it, then they just continue to think it's acceptable when it's not. Well, in an earlier episode with Professor Karen Gentry on feminist foreign policy, she used the, the term uh, people-centric policies when talking about feminist foreign policy and cited examples of Scottish government uh, people-centric policies that are shaping uh, our society in Scotland. Since this, uh, th this discussion that I had with her, I've explored this point with several other guests and would love to hear your thoughts on how more feminist or as Karen termed it, people-centric policies could help to shape an independent Scotland. So what are your thoughts, Sally? Um, yeah, I think there's so much to be done in terms of, so recently I was talking about, because um, we've got the council elections coming up, um, was looking into this initiative around gender inclusive cities, because um, when you research it, you find out that um, urban areas are designed by and for able-bodied men they don't suit so many of the population. It doesn't suit women or disabled people the way that we design um, things like pavements, lighting, things that are so simple. Um, and I think in an independent Scotland, we'd have the opportunity to listen to women and get them involved in the decision-making processes because it's always men that are at these top level positions. They don't have women's experiences and often are very, very poor at knowing when to step back and call in the help and advice of women to make the help make the decision. So I think in an independent Scotland, particularly with the leader we have right now, we would absolutely thrive um, in making sure that we had feminist, feminist policy at the heart. Would you agree with that, Charlotte? Absolutely. It, it actually made me think of a recent visit that I had with my work and um, we, we visited uh, a women's aid shelter and we were speaking to some survivors and they were sharing their experience of fleeing violence and what that's been like for them since and accessing um, housing services in the council and explaining all of the barriers that they've experienced even after they've gone through the process of fleeing violence. So I think gender competent policy making will be at the heart of an independent Scotland. Mm. We were just having a conversation about um, in the workplace, you know, gender competent planning, uh, policy making rather, looks like having 
um, free childcare available to all like staff. It looks like having sick pay for menstruation, menopause, mis miscarriage leads, all these things, having flexible work schedules for women so that they can adapt around being the, the main carer, for example, of their of their children. These things I think will be discussed and actually taken forward because we've already got the leadership here. As you said previously, our first minister just now is mm. a woman. Our cabinet is gender balanced. Our, our um, finance secretary is also a woman. So the, the, in any sense, we're already in the position where we can start to take forward these ideas for gender competent policy making. Yeah, I think that um, the, there's sometimes a perception that that gender needs to be considered at a high level and not at a day-to-day -day level. And some of the things that Sally said was really interesting. I was quite struck by um, some work that was done a wee while ago on um, simple things like clearing the pavements during um, a snowstorm mm. and how what happens in our towns and our cities is that the roads are cleared, but the pavements are aren't and and what that does is disadvantage women with buggies going taking their children to school or or trying to get anywhere it mm. makes it more difficult and i think in an independent scotland we can bring that gender focus right down to, to local level to local policies that actually make a real difference um it's not just a strategic issue it's an actual on the ground issue well, I just want to, to, to change things slightly here to, to ask you about your own experiences in, in, uh, with misogyny. As a male politician, I, I don't experience even, even half the abuse or difficulties that my female counterparts do. Um, while none of you are elected politicians, you are all still women in politics. Um, would you mind sharing some of the biases and misogyny that you faced. So I'll start with you, Sue. Um, yes, I mean, I, I think that as a as a, a sort of grey-haired uh, woman, um, it's easy for people to think they can overlook me and um, and not that I don't have something important to say. Um, and there's there's a point where you have to plant your feet very firmly on the floor and use the voice that you've got. And I'm fortunate that I can do that. I think we need to equip women with the tools to, to tackle that. Um, I, I go to lots and lots of meetings and, and um, you know, being spoken over and um, is, is, a, is a relatively common occurrence, I, I would suggest. Um, but I do think there is this sort of almost invisibility that comes to women with age and you have to really be determined that that's not going to happen. And Sally? Yeah, I mean, I'm quite open with the experiences I faced because I just find if you keep quiet about it, you internalise the shame that it feels and then you kind of think, am I the problem here? You realise once you talk to other women, um, they've all experienced it in some form as well. So like a recent experience I had was um, when actually an elected member was um, saying to me that I only got my current job because I'm young, because I'm pretty, because all these just awful reasons that are completely irrelevant to my ability to do my job. So then I spoke to my male colleagues, three of whom are roughly the same age. None of them have ever had any comment made on their ability to do their job. And it's just like, why are you questioning that? that reason I was hired wasn't because 
that I'm good at what I do. It had to come down to how I look. And it's just so tiring to have to constantly prove yourself to people. Um, yeah, and especially when you know that men aren't having to do that as well. Exactly. So, uh, Charlotte, the same question to you, but also if you could follow up by saying, how do we tackle the issue of frontline politics being uh, apparently unattractive uh, as a proposition for women? I mean, as a young woman in politics, there's definitely been plenty of times where I've been the only woman in the room. And recently, that's been the case in many um, experiences that I've had, particularly in my job. But as a young woman that's been involved with the YSI, um, a lot of our stuff's been quite high profile. And when you offer up your own opinion about it, the, the level of sort of critique, um, I'll, I'll use that word, and sort of response that you get from social media or if you get from other people in the party is nowhere near the level that I've seen my, my male counterparts receive. So um, there's that. And also, I think... Sometimes in my role in politics as a career, I can look at the way other people are interacting with, say, my male counterparts and the way that they interact with me. And there's just a different level of respect, even in the way that they, they word their emails, for example. A lot of it's very different. And I don't know if people even recognise that they're doing that. That might be a part of their own unconscious bias, as I was talking about earlier, but I'm definitely conscious of it. Um, and that makes it much more difficult for me to to do my job because I'm like, why are they not giving me the same level of respect that I can see my male colleague is definitely getting and I am not. Um, I think I've been in a very fortunate position to have had really great role models within the party. I look at someone like Hannah Bardell and Christy Blackman who've had quite a lot of support from over the years in my time in the party. These are the people that I would look towards in terms of we need people, more people like that in these roles. So like to tackle the issues facing frontline politics as simple as it sounds is we need we need more women to stay and, and not to give up. And as hard as that is, I can totally see why so many people want to pull back and say, this is no longer for me. I've just had enough, which is what we were talking about earlier, how exhausting it is to be a woman. But if enough women stay put and say, no, actually, I'm not going to be silenced and I'm not going to be pushed out the door and remain true to them and the reasons why they went into politics, more and more young women will see that as an act of courage and bravery because it's really difficult to be that person. And more and more women will be encouraged to come through the door and take that leap themselves. So I suppose just keep looking at those role models. And there are so many that exist within the independence movement. I've only named a few, but so, so many exist. So, um, and I also just want to put on record, like, thank you so much to all the amazing women that are doing that and have done that for however many like years, because I know how grinding that must be and to still keep going is, is fantastic. It's the reason why young women like Sally and I, and no doubt it's the reason why Sue still continue to be involved. So. Um, I just wanted to say that. <laughs> well, I, I think it's really important point to make, and you know, as somebody who's now an, an SMP MP at Westminster, you think about the the women that trailblazed uh, for us. You know, obviously Winnie Ewing's the the the, the one who had to go down. And uh, if you've read our, our uh, autobiography, it's uh, the the abuse and uh, intimidation that she had to put up with at Westminster, that boys' club on her own. Uh, was amazing. What a what a strong and inspirational woman she was. But as you say, there are many more there. And Sue, what what are the other barriers that women are facing when considering entering frontline politics? Um, I think getting to the point 
where you're even selected can be a challenge. Um, I think it was Sally said, um, there's often more men than women in our local branches. Um, the, the, the process that we go through now for selection, I think is very good, but I think it's still difficult to, to see yourself as, um, as, as a potential candidate, um, particularly if your branch is full of men whose voices are the loudest and, and there's only a few of you. And I think one of the things that we can do as women is to support other women with that. I'm not standing for council uh, this time because it doesn't fit with what's going on in my life at the moment. But I'm absolutely there encouraging other women to stand, encouraging other women to fill in the form and submit it and to, to see themselves in that role. And I think as, as women who are active in politics, whether we are elected or not, we have that responsibility. Um, to, to be that encouraging, empowering voice uh, that other women sometimes need. Sue's just been talking about the fact she's unfortunately not uh, standing for a council this time. That's a loss. I, I wish we were doing that. But but Sally, what, what can we be doing in the independence movement to ensure that uh, women's voices are at the core of the debate? Um, there's a lot we can do. I, I recently was having a discussion with someone where I was saying, because I'm the women's officer in my branch and I guess part of that role is encouraging women into politics um, and I was saying for me it feels irresponsible of me to encourage women to come in when we have no processes in place to support them so I think encouraging women and we need to it needs to be a safe space we need to have like we need to understand what the complaints procedure is and reporting procedures are when we face um, harassment or abuse and um, we need to have like role models we can go to people we can go to for advice when you come in you're sort of just left alone and have to fend for yourself and um, so I think if we create those processes and we make politics a safer space for women the byproduct of that is more women want to stand naturally because it's an attractive prospect, not that we have to encourage and force them and have like women's only shortlists because it's so lacking. But if we just make it a nice place to be, then it's, yeah, it's a given. Well, I think we've got some role models on this podcast today, but uh, let, let's look ahead to the referendum. As we know, uh, women were actually decisive in delivering a no vote in 2014 with 57% of them voting no uh, when 53% of men voted yes. Polling now shows that gap has all but disappeared. What What do you think has changed? I think there's a, a perception that, that women are more risk averse, but I think if you look at what's happened since 2014 with Brexit and COVID and everything else that's gone on, um, the risks of independence seem small in comparison. Um, and I think that... that that women recognise that, and, and it's it's a bigger risk to stay in the union now, isn't it? it? Ab uh, yeah, I think it absolutely is, and I think more women see that and and are looking at the risks and um, see that that actually independence is a is a a more optimistic and a more um, and and less of a risk. I think. I think as well, like just to add on to that point some of the actions that we've seen, like very specific actions that we've seen in the last year from the UK government, you know, the way that they fought back against the UNCRC, the um, migration bills mm -hmm. that they've been bringing in, they're making 
this country a very, very hostile place to be. And women are very, very conscious of that, especially where we have connections with minority women. So I think all the actions that the UK government have been taking since Brexit, since the referendum, have only added to the, the caution and the risk that we experience in this country. So, you know, we're naturally wanting to pull away from that risk. And the only way to get away from that risk at present is through independence. You know, we won't be able to achieve the, the things that we want to achieve and be the welcoming country that we actually are without independence. So I think women are far more in tune with that than they perhaps were in 2014. Okay, well, finally, to wrap things up, um, in an independent Scotland, if you had the opportunity to implement policy, um, starting with you, Sally, what's the one main change that you would bring forward? Um, I think at this point, um, reflecting on the situation in Ukraine, I have to say changing our immigration system, obviously, we're tied to Westminster there. At the moment, it's just disgusting the way they're... Um, treating these individuals who are fleeing for their lives things like picking fruit so you can get into the country is just awful um so having a let them in now sort out the paperwork later situation would be what i would suggest and sue um for me it would be a complete reworking of our social security system i'm a, a fan of um, a citizen's basic income, but I know that it comes with, with issues and it's not just a magic wand, but I would want anybody and everybody to have enough money to put food on the table, electricity in their meat. Um, and I would like to see uh, that complete overhaul, something completely different. And Charlotte? I think I would have to agree, coming from a, a working class background and being affected directly by poverty, I, I would... 100% back that sentiment. I think if we had the powers to eliminate the, the structures that exist just now that create and reinforce poverty, especially child poverty, um, we would definitely utilise them to our fullest ability. So I, I would absolutely agree with Sue on that point. Well, Charlotte Armitage, Sally Donald and Sue Lyons, thank you very much for joining me on this special episode of Scotland's Choice, the Mark International Women's Day it's been a fabulous chat. And as I said earlier in the podcast, if uh, we are looking for some role models, um, then I think we've got three pretty good ones on this podcast. So thanks again for taking part. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for listening to Scotland's Choice. You can find new and previous episodes of Scotland's Choice at scotlandschoice.scot. And you can watch the full-length videos on YouTube. If you can share this podcast and our videos, it can help others with their decision on Scotland's future. I'm Drew Hendry and I hope you'll join me next time on Scotland's Choice. Mm-hmm.